Chapter 9 of The Wolf Leader by Alexander Dumas, translated by Alfred Allenson, 1852 to 1929. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Chapter 9 The Wolf Leader. Thibault, fleeing from before Madame Poulet's threats and her farm servant's weapons, turned instinctively toward the forest, thinking to take shelter within it should he chance to come across one of the enemy for he knew that no one would venture to follow him there for fear of any lurking dangers not that thibault had much to fear whatever kind of enemy he met now that he was armed with the diabolical power which he had received from the wolf he had only to send them where he had sent the widow's pig and he was sure of being rid of them nevertheless conscious of a certain tightening of the heart when from time to time the thought of marcotta came back to him he acknowledged to himself that however anxious to be rid of them one could not send men to the devil quite as readily as one sent pigs while thus reflecting on the terrible power he possessed and looking back at intervals to see if there were any immediate need to put it into use thibault by the time night fell had reached the rear of Pisilu. it was in autumn night dark and stormy with a wind that tore the yellowing leaves from the trees and wandered through the forest ways with melancholy sighs and moanings these funereal voices of the wind were interrupted from time to time by the hooting of the owls which sounded like the cries of lost travellers hailing one another but all these sounds were familiar to thibault and made very little impression upon him moreover he had taken the precaution on first entering the forest of cutting a stick four feet long from a chestnut tree and adept as he was with the quarterstaff he was ready armed thus to withstand the attack of any four men so he entered the forest with all boldness of heart at the spot which is known to this day as the wolf's heath he had been walking for some minutes along a dark and narrow glade cursing as he went the foolish whims of women who for no reason whatever preferred a weak and timid child to a brave strong full-grown man when all of a sudden at some few paces behind him he heard a crackling among the leaves he turned and the first thing he could distinguish in the darkness was the glowing light in a pair of eyes which shone like live coals then looking more closely and forcing his eyes so to speak to penetrate the gloom he saw that a great wolf was following him step by step but it was not the wolf that he had entertained in his hut that was black while this was a reddish brown there was no mistaking one for the other either as to color or size as Thibault had no reason to suppose that all the wolves he came across would be animated with such benevolent feelings toward him as the first with which he had had dealings, he grasped his quarterstaff in both hands and began twirling it about to make sure he had not forgotten the knack of using it. But to his great surprise the wolf went on trotting quietly behind him, without evincing any hostile intention, pausing when he paused and going on again when he did only now and then giving a howl as if to summon reinforcements. Thibault was not altogether without uneasiness as regards these occasional howls, and presently he became aware of two other bright spots of light in front of him shining at intervals through the darkness, which was growing thicker and thicker. Holding his stick up in readiness to hit, he went forward toward these two lights which remained stationary, and as he did so his foot seemed to stumble against something lying across the path it was another wolf not pausing to reflect whether it might not be unwise now to attack the first wolf 
Thibault brought down his staff, giving the fellow a violent blow on the head. The animal uttered a howl of pain, then shaking his ears like a dog that has been beaten by its master, began walking on in front of the shoemaker. Thibault then turned to see what had become of the first wolf. It was still following him, still keeping step with him. Bringing his eyes back again to the front, he now perceived that a third wolf was walking alongside to the right and turning instinctively to the left, saw a fourth flanking him on that side too. Before he had gone a mile, a dozen of the animals had formed a circle round him. The situation was critical, and Thibault was fully conscious of its gravity. At first he tried to sing, hoping that the sound of the human voice might frighten away the animals, but the expedient was vain. Not a single animal swerved from its place in the circle, which was ex exactly formed as if drawn with compasses. Then he thought he would climb up into the first thick-leaved tree he came to and there wait for daylight. But on further deliberation he decided that the wisest course was to try to get home, as the wolves, in spite of their number, still appeared as well-intentioned as when there was only one. It would be time enough to climb up into a tree when they began to show signs of any change of behavior towards him. At the same time, we are bound to add that Thibault was so disquieted in mind, and that he had reached his own door before he knew where he was, he did not at first recognize his own house. But a still greater surprise awaited him, for the wolves who were in front now respectfully drew back into two lines, sitting up on their hind legs and making a lane for him to pass along. Thibault did not waste time in stopping to thank them for this act of courtesy, but dashed into the house, banging the door too after him. Having firmly shut and bolted the door, he pushed the great chest against it, that it might be better able to resist any assault that might be made upon it. Then he flung himself into a chair and began at length to find himself able to breathe more freely. As soon as he was somewhat recovered, he went and peeped through the little window that looked out on the forest. A row of gleaming eyes assured him that, far from having retired, the wolves had arranged themselves symmetrically in file in front of his dwelling. To anyone else the mere proximity of the animals would have been most alarming, but Thibault, who shortly before had been obliged to walk escorted by this terrible troop, found comfort in the thought that a wall, however thin, now separated him from his formidable companions. Thibault lit his little iron lamp and put it on the table, drew the scattered wood ashes of his hearth together and threw on them a bundle of chips, and then made a good fire, hoping that the reflection of the blaze would frighten away the wolves. But Thibault's wolves were evidently wolves of a special sort accustomed to fire, for they did not budge an inch from the post they had taken up. The state of uneasiness he was in prevented Thibault from sleeping, and directly dawn broke. He was able to look out and count them. They seemed, just as on the night before, to be waiting, some seated, some lying down, others sleeping or walking up and down like sentinels. But at length, as the last star melted away, drowned in the waves of purple light ebbing up from the east, all the wolves with one accord rose, and uttering the mournful howl with which animals of darkness are wont to salute the day, they dispersed in various directions and disappeared. Thibault was now able to sit down and think over the misadventure of the previous day, and he began by asking himself how it was that the mistress of the mill had not preferred him to his cousin Landry. Was he no longer the handsome Thibault, or had some disadvantageous change come over his personal appearance? 
There was only one way of ascertaining whether this was so or not, namely by consulting his mirror. So he took down the fragment of looking-glass hanging over the chimney-piece, and carried it towards the light, smiling to himself the while like a vain woman. But he had hardly given the first glance at himself in the mirror before he uttered a cry, half of astonishment, half of horror. True, he was still the handsome Thibault, but the one red hair, thanks to the hasty wishes which had so imprudently escaped him, had now grown into a regular lock of hair of a color and brilliancy that vied with the brightest flames upon his hearth. His forehead grew cold with sweat. Knowing, however, that all attempts to pluck it out or cut it off would be futile, he made up his mind to make the best of the matter as it stood, and in future to forbear as far as possible from framing any wishes. The best thing was to put out of his mind all the ambitious desires that had worked so fatally for him, and go back to his humble trade. So Thibault sat down and tried to work, but he had no heart for the job. In vain he tried to remember the carols he had been in the habit of singing in the happier days, when the beech and the birch shaped themselves so quickly beneath his fingers. His tools lay untouched for hours together. He pondered over matters, asking himself whether it was not a miserable thing to be sweating one's heart out merely for the privilege of leading a painful and wretched existence, when, by judiciously directing one's wishes, one might so easily attain to happiness. Formerly, even the preparation of his frugal meal had been an agreeable distraction, but it was so no longer. When hunger seized him and he was forced to eat his piece of black bread, he did it with a feeling of repugnance, and the envy, which had hitherto been nothing more than a vague aspiration after ease and comfort, was now developed into a blind and violent hatred towards his fellow-creatures. Still the day, long as it seemed to Thibault, passed away like all its fellows. When twilight fell, he went outside and sat down on the bench which he had made himself and placed in front of the door, and there he remained, lost in gloomy reflections. Scarcely had the shadows begun to darken before a wolf emerged from the underwood, and, as on the previous evening, went and lay down at a short distance from the house. As on the evening before, this wolf was followed by a second, by a third, in short, by the whole pack, and once more they all took up their respective posts preparatory to the night's watch. As soon as Thibault saw the third wolf appear, he went indoors and barricaded himself in as carefully as the evening before. But this evening he was even more unhappy and low-spirited, and felt that he had not the strength to keep awake all night. So he lighted his fire, and piled it up in such a way that it would last till the morning, and throwing himself on his bed, fell fast asleep. When he awoke it was broad daylight, the sun having risen some hours before. Its rays fell in many colors on the quivering autumn leaves, dyeing them with a thousand shades of gold and purple. Thibault ran to the window, the wolves had disappeared, leaving behind only the mark of where their bodies had lain on the dew-covered grass. Next evening they again congregated before his dwelling, but he was now growing gradually accustomed to their presence, and had come to the conclusion that his relations with the large black wolf had somehow awakened sympathetic feelings towards him and all other individuals of that same species, and he determined to find out once and for all what their designs toward him really were. Accordingly, thrusting a freshly sharpened bill-hook into his belt, and taking his boar-spear in his hand, the shoemaker opened his door and walked resolutely out to face them. Having half expected that they would spring upon him, he was greatly surprised to see them begin to wag their tails like so many dogs on seeing their master approach. 
Their greetings were so expressive of friendliness that Thibault even ventured to stroke one or two of them on the back, which they not only allowed him to do, but actually gave signs of the greatest pleasure at being thus noticed. Oho! muttered Thibault, whose wandering imagination always went ahead at a gallop. If these queer friends of mine are as obedient as they are gentle, why, here I am, the owner of a pack unequaled by any my lord baron has ever possessed, and I shall have no difficulty whatever now in dining on venison whenever the fancy so takes me. He had hardly said the words when four of the strongest and most alert of the four-footed beasts separated themselves from the others and galloped off into the forest. A few minutes later a howl was heard sounding from the depths of the underwood, and half an hour afterwards one of the wolves reappeared dragging with it a fine kid, which left behind it a long trail of blood on the grass. The wolf laid the animal at Thibault's feet, who delighted beyond measure at seeing his wishes not only accomplished, but forestalled broke up the kid, giving each of the wolves an equal share and keeping the back and haunches for himself. Then, with the gesture of an emperor, which showed that he now at last understood the position he held, he ordered the wolves away until the morrow. Early next morning, before the day broke, he went off to Villers-Cotterets, and at the price of a couple of crowns the innkeeper of the boule d'or took the two haunches off his hands. The following day it was half of a boar that Thibault conveyed to the innkeeper, and it was not long before he became the latter's chief purveyor. Thibault, taking a taste for this sort of business, now passed his whole day, hanging about the taverns, and gave no more thought to the making of shoes. One or two of his acquaintances began to make fun of his red lock, for however assiduously he covered it with the rest of his hair, it always found a way of getting through the curls that hid it and making itself visible. But Thibault soon gave it plainly to be understood that he would take no joking about the unfortunate disfigurement. Meanwhile, as ill luck would have it, the Duke of Orleans and Madame de Montesson came to spend a few days at Villers-Cotterets. This was a fresh incentive to Thibault's madly ambitious spirit. All the fine and beautiful ladies and all the gay young lords from the neighboring estates, the Montbreton, the Montesquiot, the Corval, hastened to Villers-Cotterets. The ladies brought their richest attire, the young lords their most elegant costumes. The baron's hunting horn resounded through the forest louder and gayer than ever. Graceful Amazons and dashing cavaliers, in red coats laced with gold, passed like radiant visions as they were borne along on their magnificent English horses, illuminating the somber depths of the wood like brilliant flashes of light. In the evening it was different. Then all this aristocratic company assembled for feasting and dancing, or at other times drove out in beautiful gilt carriages bedizened with coats of arms of every color. Thibault always took his stand in the front rank of the lookers-on, gazing with avidity on these clouds of satin and lace, which lifted now and then to disclose the delicate ankles encased in their fine silk stockings, and the little shoes with their red heels. Thus the whole cavalcade swept past in front of the astonished peasantry, leaving a faint exhalation of scent and powder and delicate perfumes. And then Thibault would ask himself why he was not one of those young lords in their embroidered coats, why he had not one of these beautiful women in their rustling satins for his mistress. Then his thoughts would turn to Agnelette and Madame Paulet, and he saw them just as they were, the one a poor little peasant girl, the other nothing more than the owner of a rustic mill. But it was when he was walking home at night through the forest accompanied by his pack of wolves, which, from the moment the night fell and 
he set foot inside the forest no more thought of leaving him than the king's bodyguard would dream of leaving their royal master that his broodings took their most disastrous turn surrounded by the temptations which now assailed him it was only what was to be expected that thibault who had already gone so far in the direction of evil should break away from what little good was still left in him losing even the very remembrance of having once led an honest life what were the few paltry crowns that the landlord of the bull d'or gave him in payment for the game which his good friends the wolves procured for him saved up for months even for years they would still be insufficient to satisfy a single one of the humblest of the desires which kept tormenting his brain it would be scarcely safe to say that thibault who had first wished for a haunch of the baron's buck then for agnelletta's heart and then for the widow paulet's mill would now be satisfied even with the castle at Wagny or Longpont. To such extravagant issues had his ambition been excited by those dainty feet, those trim ankles, those exquisite scents exhaled from all those velvet and satin gowns. At last one day he said to himself definitely that it would be the veriest folly to go on living his poor life when a power so tremendous as he now possessed was at his disposal. From that moment he made up his mind that no matter if his hair should grow as red as the crown of fire which is seen at night hanging over the great chimney at the glassworks of st gobain he would exercise this power of his to the accomplishing of the most high flown of his ambitions end of chapter nine recording by john van stam savannah georgia